Well, if you read Yahoo Finance or uh, CNBC or The Guardian, they're always the media is always popularizing the uh, frugal millionaires. You know, they're recycling their toilet paper, they're uh, dumpster diving for their food, uh, they're doing <laughs> extraordinary things with dental floss to get to financial independence. And it gives the average reader the impression that if you want to be financially independent, that you have to sacrifice your entire lifestyle for some incredible number of years before you reach financial independence. And then by then you're old, you might be financially independent, but you aren't young enough or don't have enough energy left to enjoy your life anymore. And of course that's not true. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 122. Clark, how's it going? What's going on? Good, good. Doing well. What's up with you? Not much. Just uh, getting ready. Got a couple trips here planned and at the end of the month. So uh, We're going to London in the spring. You guys are going to where? South America. Yeah, we got way too much travel this spring. We got all sorts of trips, work, non-work, and then, uh, yeah, we're taking off together. For a little trip down to Central America for for a few days, so excited nice. about that coming up. Been trying to plan for that and get everything all situated. So we were talking a little bit before here. We found this article on CNBC. It's titled "Americans Have 21 Billion in Unused Gift Cards." So as you kind of just scroll through this article, it's kind of interesting. It says half of all adults currently own unredeemed gift cards and or store credits. On average, $167. As I thought about this, I thought I probably have up to that amount, I think, in a drawer at home. Do you? You know, I, I tend to try to, I started doing this new thing with gift cards, especially the Visa type gift cards that are basically just like cash. And and what I'll do is I'll just go and, and apply them to my Amazon account. So I'll basically buy an Amazon gift card because Amazon will let you buy, you know, $37.50 or whatever exactly is on there. And then I will basically buy that amount of credit on Amazon and then use it on my Amazon account. But no, I, I there was a point I think last year, I, I, and this is why I changed to, to doing this is I think we, we totaled up, we had like four or $500 worth of gift cards that we hadn't used just cause we hadn't shopped at those stores or, or whatever else. So it's crazy. You know, we, we, we discuss all these different strategies and I mean, God, this is $21 billion, 167 on average. That, that, that people have un, unredeemed gift cards, you know, and this kind of, you know, I, we kind of play a little bit in the, in the space my company does with, with gift cards and stuff. And so I see, you know, we just had a bunch on the balance sheet, unused gift cards, you know, that were over five years old that people had never used. And I think just in general, some of the retail spaces play on this, right? They say if gift cards are highly profitable because people just don't use them. So they get, you know, the company gets the cash. You know, they have this outstanding gift card and it's not just gift cards. It's also unclaimed property at state. You know, it's called a sheet. If people are, are, are interested and go look on the state's website and see, it's crazy. I, I was looking not too long ago, just, you know, family members and we had all sorts of family members that had just, just in, in the state of Texas, <laughs> thousands of dollars in unclaimed yeah. property and dollars sitting there at the state. You know? Yeah, we had we had the same. I think my grandpa had like 160 bucks, and I just do a Google search like Utah unclaimed property or New York unclaimed property, and then you can. There's just a website that pulls up whatever, and you can type in 
the name or search by first and last name. And, and sometimes there's an address associated. Sometimes there's not. But yeah, that's just kind of a fun thing to do. And you can you can find some things that I don't even know where they come from or how they get there. But well, sometimes there. it comes in in final checks or it comes from deposits from utility companies or you know just random settlement things like that. I mean, the ones I had back when I found in college were just random utility deposits that had been. They they had sent me the payment, and for whatever reason, I thought it got applied to the last bill, or who knows what. And they tried to send the payment to me, and it basically got returned and and turned over to the state. And then I was looking it up one day, and I found it. I was like, "Crap, I got to claim that money." Sure enough, send me a check, and I'm on my way. But it's the same thing with gift cards too. You know, if you want to exchange gift cards, or, or you know, do the Amazon thing I talked about. There's a couple of websites out there, Card Pool and Raise. You know, you can trade some of those those gift cards in for cash. So we, we get in this conversation, especially some people in the FI community want to travel hack and they want to do all these different things to earn points. Here's another source of potentially a bunch of unclaimed property, unclaimed dollars that, that people haven't uh, tapped into. Yeah, pretty interesting. Lots of money out there and, and <laughs> guilty. I'm one of them. Totally. So today's show, we've got Nords. He's got a net worth of a million bucks, which is invested primarily in the market. Uh, he's retired from the military and has an incredible story and journey to living a full, rich life doing the things in the places he loves the most. Last week's episode, we had Brian, in a net worth of 1.1, invested primarily in the stock market. He worked as a pharmacist. He got a little bit later start with his investment journey, and he kind of gets into how he got started, something that stemmed from a simple Google search. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, this week's sponsor is a podcast titled Start From Zero. It's a wonderful new podcast and has climbed the ranks quickly. It's a unique show and has even reached the top 15 in rankings. It's an experienced entrepreneur who takes people from all walks of life and mentors them, teaching them how to make money starting from zero without compromising who they are. Also, the podcast has a 50% female participants on the episodes. It's got 15 millionaire students, and it definitely shows. The episodes are highly edited for maximum impact. It's as good as they come. If you'd like to try out an episode to see if you like it, visit startfromzero.com slash millionaire. People have been binge listening to it just like Netflix. That's startfromzero.com slash millionaire. You know, Clark, Netflix kind of brings me, brings a, a thought into my head. Just this last week, I saw, a, uh, actually, I purchased it. It's an ice cream, Ben and Jerry's. Uh, it's called binging on Netflix. Netflix and chill. Netflix or- and chill. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were just at a we just had a friends and the, and she pulled it out and was like, hey, look at this new this new flavor, Netflix and chill. Yeah, man. It's like taking Netflix and some of these. It was peanut butter ice cream, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty I haven't good. Tried it. My my favorite's still the the tonight though, but the the Netflix and chill is pretty good. I just kind of laugh at all these these companies have kind of taken over you know, our lives in a lot of ways of subscription models. And you look at what used to be the Fang stocks and now it's kind of changed and, you know, they're all, they're all on a tear. But anyway, we appreciate all of you tuning in the podcast week after week. If you enjoy the, enjoy the show, we'd appreciate you leaving a five-star review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. Just thought I'd throw this out there. We we really appreciate all our listeners. You know, Clark and I just were looking at, at kind of the statistics and where we've come from. And, uh, you know, we just we're in the top 50 for investing podcasts. The Millionaires and Vell podcast is and, and also top 100 for for business. So appreciate you tuning in every week, making this show a success. It's definitely allowed us to get great guests and continue to bring these stories uh, to you and, and, and dive into everybody's investment portfolios. So without any further ado, let's get into today's episode with Nords. 
Nords, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're doing now? Sure. I've been retired from the U.S. Navy's submarine force for uh, almost 18 years now. I did 20 years of active duty in the 80s and 90s. Uh, my spouse is also was active duty Navy, and she went into the Navy Reserves and finished her career there. She's been retired for a few years. Uh, we live in Hawaii, on Oahu, and we our daughter was born and raised here. And our daughter is also in the Navy. Uh, she just finished her five years of active duty and moved to the Reserves. Uh, her spouse is also active duty Navy, and he's still on active duty. So this ended up sort of being the family business. Uh, I've been uh, writing for the last 15 years. We've had a book out uh, about financial independence for military families. And this is what passes for conversation around our dinner table. Uh, these days, though, in Hawaii, we enjoy you know, slow travel, surfing, home improvement, and, you know, the usual life on the islands. Uh, it's beautiful weather here in January. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how the weather is for you guys. Yeah, not so great here in New York. Yeah. It's not too bad in Austin, Texas. I keep telling Clark he's got to move down here. Oh, that's a lovely town. I really enjoyed being there once. Awesome. Yeah, you're living the dream, though, in Hawaii, surfing and in, in the sunshine. That's where everybody vacations, right? You got a 24-7, 365 vacation. It's amazing how many people will find it necessary to come here in January and February. There must be something going on <laughs> on the mainland. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So awesome. You got the family business. Appreciate your service, by the way, in the military. And, and it seems like you guys have had phenomenal careers. And we'll get into that in a second. But kind of just want to get into what your net worth is today and, and kind of how that's allocated. Well, well, thanks for your support. And uh, we do have a net worth of uh, well over a million dollars. But the way I like to phrase it is that uh, we have almost three times, four times as much money as we need. We're at 271% of uh, what we would need to be financially independent on a strict 4% safe withdrawal rate. And, and it's because I've been retired for 18 years. We've had quite a bit of compounding despite the last two recessions, you know, 2001 and 2002 and the, and the Great Recession. And that compounding is what the 4% safe withdrawal rate math almost guarantees. So to people that are just starting out, it's very hard to see that yourselves going across that finish line for financial independence. It's even harder to see yourself where you are 18, 20 years into financial independence and having that kind of a net worth. And I know this because I can hardly believe it myself. So how is that allocated well, we've had a very reliable military salary since the early 1980s. At first, it was just military paycheck, and uh, we had a relatively high continuity of employment. Then uh, once my military pension kicked in, that's fairly reliable as well. So we've been greater than 95% equities for the last 30 years, and that's part of why we've had the compound growth we've had, of course, is being in the stock market for the last three decades. And are you in any particular funds in those equities? You invest in individual stocks or mutual funds or index funds. What's kind of your, your cup of tea there? We've been doing it for almost 40 years now, but uh, we started out in the typical 1980s actively managed equity mutual funds. And then in the early 2000s, we shifted over to exchange traded funds. We were just trying to lower the expense ratios on the funds that we were invested in. But we pretty much stayed in some sort of a high equity asset allocation. And in the last few years, we've been going for even more simplification. We've moved away from the individual exchange-traded funds, and now we're just going for a total stock market index. Uh, it's actually the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, the exchange-traded fund version. 
Awesome. And you've kind of given us a, a little bit of more info on, on your breakdown. And I kind of want to get into a couple of these. You say you've got about yeah. 8% in your angel investments. Some of those are winding down. How did you get involved in those? Why did you decide to invest in those? That's something that we don't hear very often from our millionaires on, on the podcast. And I'm kind of curious about that. Oh, that's interesting because that's one of the criteria for being an accredited investor is having that million dollars of investable assets. I figure once everybody gets that threshold line, their curiosity runs away with them and they they start doing startup investing. That's the way it was for me. I was very curious about angel investing. And when a friend invited me to go to a lunch, I went to the Hawaii Angels Lunch out here. That was in late 2007. So I've been doing angel investing for, wow, almost 18, eight, 12 years now. The, uh, the whole idea of angel investing is that you give that first jolt of capital, that first seed capital to a startup. And so we will typically see the founders who have probably put in some money from family and friends, and now they're looking to raise another couple hundred thousand from angel investors. Uh, I've made uh, a total of 11 investments, 11 startups over the last decade, and now I'm just letting those play out to their conclusion. Um, so far, the conclusions have been that they fail fast. I've got two or three that look like they're probably going to get to the exit in another year or two, but I'm just letting all of that finish out and I'll, I'll take whatever cashes out and just wind it all down over the next five years. I've learned a lot from angel investing, but I don't feel the need to keep doing it. So was that a mistake or, or are you happy you did it and you just kind of learned from it and had fun doing it? I, I guess you'd say I've made seven mistakes so far, but the, uh, <laughs> the ones that have, the ones that have uh, failed, I've finally understood all the reasons that go into that. Uh, angel investing has made me a much better investor overall. It's taught me a lot about accounting. It's taught me a lot about business models. It's taught me a lot about cash flow. All those things you want to learn when you're picking even publicly traded stocks. You have to do a lot of due diligence and really understand what you're getting into. Uh, the mistakes I've made, of course, have been uh, some uh, startups seem to be better than they actually were, or there are market forces totally outside of our control that wiped out a company. But we've still got a few that haven't failed yet, and they're making revenue. They're actually growing, and uh, they're headed for the exit, so I'm pretty sure, on two of them. Nice. That's good for you. Yeah. So real estate, you have one rental property, is that right? That's right. We've got the one rental property mainly for family. There's a chance in the next few years my daughter and son-in-law could be stationed out here on Oahu. And when they are, yeah, assuming that uh, it comes to pass, if they want to live in our rental property, that's great. Uh, it's also a age-in-place friendly rental property. It's all on a single level, a very walkable neighborhood. The place we're living now, I plan to live here for the rest of my life. It's got a great location, great views. I have everything just the way I want it up here. But should I pass away before my spouse, we've got that other property that she can move into and age in place on her own. Uh, so this is being held for family reasons, not financial reasons. Uh, Hawaii real estate just does not pass the Hawaii investor criteria that you want to have for mainland real estate. Yeah. So when did you acquire the rental property? We uh, moved into this house we're living in now in year 2000, and we had bought the house that's now a rental property in 1989. So we've had that for over 30 years Wow. When we moved into this place in 2000, we kept the rental place. And the reason we kept it is because that was at the end of a, a painful real estate recession on the island. It was actually easier to move into the new house and keep the old house because we would have lost money selling it. We've gotten some cash flow out of it over the years. But as you know, about half the money that you get for gross rent goes right back into maintenance and repairs and everything else. So this has underperformed. It's been a tremendous opportunity cost compared to the stock market. 
But on the other hand, it's uh, been a very good home, and it'll be a very good home for uh, my daughter and son-in-law if they come back to the island. Yeah. So mortgage-wise, do you have any mortgages on e- on either of those? Yeah, we do have the mortgage on the primary residence on our home, and we uh, have that leveraged up pretty good. It's uh, about 65% uh, mortgaged, and we've got about 35% of the equity. Uh, real estate around here uh, makes about as much sense as it does in New York City or San Francisco, right? So mm-hmm. the home here ha- has grown in value, and it appraises at a million dollars, which I find very hard to believe. Uh, and we've got the mortgage just over 600000 So I guess that's about 60% uh, mortgage and about 40% equity. Gotcha. And then just curious, what's your rate? Do you ever think about paying that off? or? Well, it's it's 3.5%. And you know that among the financial independence world, there's a perpetual debate about whether you should pay off your mortgage or whether right. you should keep that money and invest in the stock market. And for the last 15 years, we've been running the numbers. I've invested that money in exchange-traded funds, and now in a total stock market index. And so far, we've borrowed at 35 and invested for an after-tax return just of that money of about 8%. Uh, I, so ne- I see no reason to pay off the mortgage. Uh, in fact, this mortgage we got now, I'm going to have it until I'm 87 years old. <laughs> yeah, talk about life goals. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. I love it, though. I think it's no, great. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion because some of the millionaires that we have on want to pay it off, right? As soon as they, as soon as they can, they put a 15 year on it and then just work hard to pay it off. And sometimes they even pay it off earlier. And then there's others that take your route and, and say, what's the point, right? If it's at three, three and a half percent, four percent, and I can beat that in the market and I have enough reserves on the side, then why do I need to pay it off? But well, the other aspect of that is I've got a military pension. And so essentially what I've done is I've borrowed 30 years of my pension and put up my house as collateral. But I'm pretty sure that military pension is going to keep paying off for the next 30 years to cover the mortgage payment. Yeah. And you get that till you die? Absolutely. Uh, and that's hedging the, the fact that I've got that mortgage on there. So that's uh, I've got to live until the mortgage is paid off. Otherwise, there's no mortgage insurance on the property and my pension dies with me. And you mentioned about to ask, would you think differently about that mortgage if you didn't have that pension? I would be a little more concerned. Uh, at this point in my life, though, uh, with where our assets are and having the uh, available assets to pay off the remaining balance of the mortgage where it is, then I wouldn't worry about keeping the mortgage for another 30 years. But on the day I retired, if I had not had that pension cash flow, if I had not had that annuity coming in, then yeah, I would have had a little bit of concern about keeping a mortgage that long. I probably would have paid it off before the Great Recession. Yeah, The income from the rental property helps a little bit though, probably, I guess, uh, unless your family's going to live there. It does. It helps a very little bit. You guys are probably familiar with the uh, 1% thumb rule where it tells you yeah. that you want enough mortgage income to have a capitalization rate of about 6%. Well, out here, our cap rate is about 25 to 3%. So when CDs are paying 1% to 2%, uh, okay, we're pretty smart. We've got an investment property that beats CDs. But when CDs start rising at a 3 3.5% range, well, I'm an idiot financially for having a rental property. But again, we are holding this for family reasons. Yeah. So do you have anything in traditional IRAs or traditional 401ks? We used to start that way. Uh, back in the 80s and, uh, and in the 90s, uh, we started investing in uh, traditional IRAs uh, around 1986 after my wife and I married. Uh, we were able in the military to invest in a federal version of the 401k, the thrift savings plan, but that started up for the military in 2002. So we didn't get very much money in that. I had already retired by the time that came around. What we did, though, is put all the money we could at the time into the thrift savings plan and into traditional IRAs, 
And since then, we've spent the first 16 years of my retirement gradually converting those traditional IRAs into Roth IRAs. We finished that project last year, two years ago. Oh, nice. And how come you decided to do that? Well, we could look down the road and see that our income tax bracket later on in retirement was going to be a lot higher than it is now. When when you reach financial independence and if you stop working, and, and not everybody does that, a lot of people reach financial independence and they, they want to keep working. But if you stop working, your income drops dramatically and so does your income tax bracket. At that point, you've got an opportunity to convert your traditional 401k or IRA into a Roth IRA. And you do a little bit every year up to the height of the income tax bracket you're in. So hypothetically, you'd be getting into the 10 or 12% income tax bracket by converting now instead of waiting later on in life. Uh, My spouse retired from the Navy Reserve. Her pension starts in 2022. And we can do that math on the income taxes and see that we're going to be in at least the uh, next higher bracket than that, 22, maybe even 24%. So it makes a lot of sense to convert before that, which is what we just finished doing. I also could see down the road that when we started taking Social Security, even if we waited until age 70 or our Medicare premiums, you've heard of the IRMA acronym that basically raises your Medicare premiums, I could see that we were going to spend a lot of money on that as well. So the Roth IRA conversions early on made total sense for our tax bracket. Yeah, and then you have a high tax state, and then who knows if these tax laws will even stay the same, right? Once they get, once they potentially change in 2026, they could go right back up. Right. I, I can't judge political risk at all. I can just hope that I make the right moves where it makes sense and then I'm grandfathered in. Uh, Hawaii for retirees is actually a very tax-friendly state. But mm. again, you're right. If we're running out of tax revenue, there's always a chance to expect the retirees to start carrying their share of the tax load out here. Yeah. What's the state tax there? The uh, brackets out here for retirees, well, for Workers are from 4% up to 11%, uh, but as a retiree, you have generous exemptions and deductions, and so we pay very little state income tax out here. Mm. We also, compared to everybody else in America, pay very little property tax. The property tax rate out here is only about 3.5 mils, about 0.35%. So even though I'm running around with a million-dollar home, I'm not even paying $3,500 a year in property taxes. Wow, that's pretty amazing. That's a dream compared to Texas, man. We're like... Almost 3%. <laughs> well, yeah. And and you end up raising the money in other ways. And in Hawaii, yeah, it's tax income tax. So it comes in property. Exactly. Exactly. And out here, you're taxing the workers. And uh, if I was a worker out here, I wouldn't be very happy about that. So this traditional thing, this traditional stuff is, is interesting, Doug, because I, I wonder, obviously, you guys are in a different situation because you have these mm-hmm. pensions coming in. You have some rental income, right? Mm-hmm. But but we've had a couple conversations with millionaires that have a high amount in, in their traditional IRA accounts, and and then they're going to start having to take these required minimum distributions, right? Oh yeah, which, which were seven and a half, now pushed back to seventy two. But uh-huh. I mean, it's a it's a tricky situation, right? From a young age, do you put any into a traditional account, and then from an older age, do you or even a younger, do you convert back to a Roth? It's right. a difficult conversation. You've essentially got to predict what your income tax bracket is going to be 30, 40, even 50 years down the road. Right, which is tricky when you're It, it is very tricky. Old. And it's also difficult even if you're in the military. What we find is that a lot of military families will continue a career. Maybe they'll retire frequently. They get out before retirement and then jump right into a bridge career. So unless you reach financial independence relatively early in your 40s and 50s and have a period of five to 10 years with very low earned income, maybe no earned income at all, you really don't have much room to do that Roth IRA conversion. 
we happened to be able to make that work because essentially neither one of us had any earned income from employment. But that's very rare among military families and relatively rare among military retirees. And I can see the same debate going on all the time among everyone else that's not in the military, all the civilians that are reaching financial independence. Yeah. So just changing gears here, uh, mm-hmm. what's your take kind of on where the markets are today? Obviously, we've had a huge you know, bull market the last 12 years or so. We're recording this at the end of January 2020. Do you ever think about selling off a big portion of your holdings in, in equities? Do you, or do you just say, whatever, I'm going to ride the market. I've got plenty of time. You know, I'll just let it go. Well, let me, let me frame my investing experience. When I was in college, just starting out, inflation was in double digits. And the year I graduated from college, I had a checking account with a local bank that paid 10% interest on a checking account. Wow. Back then, the conventional wisdom was you're going to invest in either gold bullion or raw diamonds because those were the only things that kept up with inflation. <laughs> and you might remember in 1979, Business Week did a uh, cover story on the death of equities. They said the stock market was as low as it was going to go and you're never going to see any stocks ever make money ever again, even though they were probably paying a 4 or 5% dividend. And that was in 1979, three years before the bottom. So I don't see today's market as being overvalued. I think that most of everything in the market is probably pretty fully valued, but I have no idea where it can go. And the 40 years has taught me that I have no clue where the stock market's going to go at any given year, let alone in between months or quarters. Pick an asset allocation and stick with it. And I find that when people are asking questions about the market, you know, is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? What about Bitcoin? Usually what they're really asking is, help me find a better asset allocation that I can live with, that doesn't upset me during market volatility, and so that I can sleep well at night. And if they're married, they want to know what asset allocation they can explain to their spouse during the next recession. But that all boils down to an asset allocation question rather than a prediction on a stock market. You've got this great net worth. You've got plenty of of, of income for your lifestyle. Where yeah. do you kind of go from here? That's a that's a good lifestyle question. I wish I had a better answer. But the uh, the things that we enjoy doing in financial independence don't cost a lot of money. I actually looked at our spending the other day over the last 18 years of, of retirement, and it's grown slower than inflation. You expect that you would have lifestyle uh, increase in price as you go along, and you'd expect that some things you would actually exceed the rate of inflation. But the things we enjoy doing, we've optimized the heck out of it. And so our expenses have stayed relatively flat, considering inflation, for 18 years. And meanwhile, our portfolio is going much faster than inflation. It's compounding uh, has really taken off. So from here, maybe it's going to be like that for the rest of my life. I I really don't have any idea on that. Uh, What I do know now from what I've seen is that we can afford to uh, self-insure. For example, uh, my father passed away a couple of years ago from Alzheimer's in a care facility, uh, and he actually had some assets left over when he passed away. Uh, my brother and I divided up that inheritance, and I used my share of that inheritance to put that into a small taxable account for self-insuring for long-term care. If I turn out to have a, a family history like my father, then it's good that I've got that money there for long-term care and for the expenses of that. So we self-insure with some of that uh, excess worth. Uh, on the other hand, I don't see any other uh, need to go out and try to grow our net worth. I don't feel competitive about it. What I feel more is uh, an imperative uh an urge, uh, a, a stewardship burden 
uh, of where we should figure out a way to give that money away. I, I don't think I'm going to be the kind of uh, person who's going to sign the uh, giving pledge. I don't think we're going to have that kind of net worth. But I do feel strongly as the years go by that we should probably give more to charity and, and do more philanthropy. And we've started doing a little bit of that. I can see that we're eventually going to start giving away much more every year as the cash flow sorts itself out and as we live the rest of our lives. Uh, you've probably heard of the retirement spending smile where you have a lot of money that you spend early in financial independence because you're running around entertaining yourself and doing a lot of travel. And as you get older, that tends to slow down a little bit as you figure out what you really want to spend your money on and as you take a more leisurely approach to your lifestyle. And then maybe every year it gets a little less until by the time you're close to the end of life, your spending has dropped much below what it used to be when you first reached financial independence. Uh, maybe there's some expenses for end-of-life care that we've got covered. So I see that we have the margin, we have the room to give more away to charities and, and, and a legacy. Uh, I don't know what that looks like yet. We keep having those discussions and uh, we'll eventually figure it out. Is there anything that you ended up splurging on in as you've kind of moved into financial independence and, and, and retirement? We get that question a lot. And the implicit assumption looking at our lifestyle is that we could splurge on anything we want. And our neighbors look at us and say, well, it's clear that they're not splurging on anything. I look at the way they live their lives. Uh, but the two things that we do splurge on are travel. And the other thing we splurge on is surfboards. Uh, you know, I used to joke that uh, I had a surfboard problem, but now I have enough racks to store them all, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, you know, I, I can collect the whole set between uh, six and ten feet, one-inch increments. And the, I love uh, it. Love it. Oh, yeah. Well, come on out here. You'll, you'll appreciate many, it. How many do you have? Uh, <laughs> well, I, uh, I found it necessary to buy my eighth board last week, a nice stand-up paddleboard model, and uh, I'm going to get better at that. Uh, <laughs> Now, in my defense, not much. In my defense, uh, my daughter and my son-in-law are coming out to the islands this summer, and we want to do some more surfing. So it's good to have a couple extra boards around so that everybody can try the ones they want in the surf conditions. Totally. Uh, but we splurge on travel. And when I say splurge on travel, what I mean is we do a lot of travel hacking, and we favor flying first class. Uh, I'm 59 years old. Uh, I'm fairly uh, wide in the shoulders and long in the legs and sore in the knees. I uh, do not enjoy sitting in economy. I don't even enjoy sitting in enhanced economy. Every time you get an airplane here in, Oahu, in Oahu to fly to another continent, you're in that plane for a minimum of five hours. So we prefer to fly first class. We'll travel hack to do that. We tend to take very long trips where we'll leave the island for a couple of months that way, I don't have to make that five-hour flight uh, more than you know a handful of times every year. And then wherever you go, do you do Airbnbs or hotels, or what do you do? Yep, we'll uh, we'll when wherever we end up, we'll look at uh, a hotel probably for the first night just to get oriented and straightened out. Uh, we know that we're going to be jet lagged, and there's nothing worse than uh, having a horrible case of jet lag at ten o'clock at night while you're trying to find your Airbnb and find out where the host left the key. So we tend the very first night where we get somewhere to uh, take a hotel just to make an easy transition. After that, we really enjoy Airbnbs and we'll search for a, a fully featured, generally it's, it'll be an apartment or a condo or maybe even occasionally a standalone home. And we'll try to stay in a place, we, we favor slow travel. And so we'll try to stay in a place for uh, at least five or six days. We prefer to live local and explore the neighborhood rather than to bounce all over an area like a ping pong ball. We'd rather stay in one spot and get to know the neighborhood fairly well. So 
if I can work out a long-term deal with an Airbnb where I'm in that apartment for two, three weeks, maybe even a month, that's that's wonderful. That's exactly our lifestyle. Is there anything that's been surprising to you that you wouldn't have thought as you've retired and, and moved into financial independence? I wouldn't have expected the uh, growth in our net worth that happened. Now, if you sit down and look at a projection on a spreadsheet of your net worth over time and you look at the compound interest and you watch all that on a spreadsheet, it makes perfect sense. And, and the 4% safe withdrawal rate math also predicts that probability is that you're going to have more money than you need. That's math. That's logic. Emotionally, I did not expect that at all. I expected that we would be barely staying on the positive side of the 4% safe withdrawal rate. I expected to have a very tough time with recessions or, or be concerned about the stock market. And the reality is that once you reach financial independence, you go through an attitude shift. And this takes a while. It, it can take a year or two. But you go from an attitude that got you to financial independence of perhaps scarcity, where you're holding on to your job because you don't know if you can get another job. You're controlling your expenses because you want to make sure you don't overspend on your lifestyle. That kind of attitude, the attitude that you might have limited resources. After a couple of years of financial independence, as your net worth takes off, as your spending stays flat or declines, and as you have more time in your life, you have better sleep, better health, and more free time to just think, you start to see opportunities. And that leads to that mind shift from scarcity to abundance. And it's the same kind of abundance that the authors write about in books, where you see opportunity everywhere. And we made that shift uh, after two or three years of our financial independence. And that's the biggest surprise of all over the long term. Now, today, I'm perfectly happy with abundance. It's a great attitude to have. But it is a tough transition to make, especially if you feel during your working years while you're striving for financial independence, especially if you feel that there's that scarcity mentality. And, and you guys know that there are entrepreneurs out there who have always been in charge of their own careers. They've always had that abundance mentality. And that's what probably makes them great entrepreneurs. But most people that are employed with a corporate career and have a traditional paycheck can certainly feel like there's jeopardy of employment and they've got to be careful of lifestyle and they just feel that general scarcity in their in their income. Yeah, yeah, really good answer. I, I, I totally agree. I want to go back just a couple comments ago. You talked about mm -hmm. you know, being a wise steward with your money, giving some of it away, right? Uh, philanthropic causes. And this, and this question's come up a couple times with our millionaires and other people have written in and, and, and are curious about it as well. How do you decide two things, who to give it to or who to help out and then how much to give? Uh, again, I don't pretend to have the answers. Uh, I've been asking a lot of questions and going down those same rabbit holes on research that you guys just asked that question of. There's an author, Pete Seeger, who wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Life You Can Save. He has two ideas. One idea is that Human life, all human life, is valuable. And so if you can save a 1,000 lives for your dollar, then it's probably a better deal to do that than it is to spend that dollar on saving one person's life. And that philosophy tends to focus your philanthropy on areas of tremendous poverty. For example, the Indian subcontinent or Africa, where you can dig a well relatively cheaply and that well will keep an entire village of people alive and thriving and more economic activity and better health and better longevity and, in general, everything good for the globe, not just for the American who gives that money away. That's one philosophy. On the other side is the philosophy that 
you want to put that money where you're going to get the greatest return on the money that you've invested in a human life. And so you want to, hypothetically, you want to give that dollar to bring the next person up in the world who turns out to be Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Elon Musk, somebody who's going to make a tremendous impact on the American economy and do great things. And all you had to do is spend a dollar to help them graduate from high school or get a college scholarship or start their first business. Those are the two philosophies. I favor the one where you give people a hand up. Uh, For example, we feel strongly about donating to a food bank. And one famous billionaire who's a, a philanthropist now said that there are many times during his life where they got through that rough patch with a food bank. And so everywhere he goes on travels, he donates to the local food bank. That part, that resonated with me. Uh, I also noted that one aspect of angel investing, uh, when it doesn't come out and make you a millionaire like Facebook, it's more like angel philanthropy. And angel philanthropy is when you're giving money to two founders who have a great idea and they know they can make some money and it's it starts to work. And so you've given them, say, $25,000 and they take that $25,000 investment from you and from 10 other people. They put together a great product or service. They start earning revenue. They start helping people. If they're medical tech, they're starting to save lives. They're also hiring more people. They're working hard for their money. They take your dollar and generate tremendous capital from that. And you get a great return on the investment in saving lives or making the economy better or making life better for other Americans. So those are the two that resonated with me. I see that that we're probably going to have to give away more money than that. Uh, one other thing that resonates very strongly with me is Access Surf. It's a nonprofit organization out here in Hawaii that helps people who are either unable or disabled to be able to surf and helps them use adaptive surfing technology and just a bunch of people in the water with them to help them learn to surf. And so out here with Access Surf, down at our, our local South Shore Beach for Saturday morning of every month, you'll see uh, 20 or 30 people in the water surfing who would never have been able to do it by themselves. They've got special boards, they've got helpers, they've got a ton of lifeguards in the water and a bunch of people helping out on the beach to make that all come together. And it's changing lives. Mm -hmm. And it also helps a lot with uh, military veterans. So those are the big pictures. And again, I know a lot of the questions, but I don't have many of the answers yet. No, that's a a phenomenal answer. I think you're off to a I mean, I don't think it's just a start for you, right? I think I think you're starting to figure it out and, and commendable, very, very commendable. What drives you? Can, you? you can try that cold-hearted logic and math, but I think what really works sustainably in the long term is doing the things, giving the money to the causes, which makes you feel good about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Doug, what drives you? You seem pretty passionate. You seem pretty focused. You seem knowledgeable. You seem driven. Obviously, you were in your career. Was it all for financial independence? Was it for your family? What's kind of dr- driven you throughout life and what continues to drive you now as you're retired? Well, I've always, I've always been curious and interested in learning stuff and uh, doing cool things with cool gear. Uh, you know, I was the classic uh, high school nerd uh, in a computer lab or uh, sitting there tweaking with something electronic. Uh, the Navy let me uh, work with submarines and uh, nuclear reactors and uh, weapon systems, and I got paid for that. I really enjoyed my career for the first 10 years. The second thing that changed my priorities, though, was when my wife and I started our family. And at that point in my career, there's big change in priorities. We found ourselves wanting to spend more time watching our daughter grow up and being there for her. So I was able to finally work out the time in, the, in my career to get to active duty retirement. 
in in retrospect, I did it wrong. As soon as we had our bat, our baby and started our family, I probably should have left active duty and gone to the Navy Reserve instead. But I managed to get to an active duty pension. The financial independence would have worked out about the same either way. Might have taken me a year longer from the Navy Reserve, but the lifestyle would have been a lot better. And once I retired, once you get caught up on your sleep, you get your health under control, you lose the extra 10 or 15 pounds you gained in the Navy, whatever the situation is in your life, and you feel like you're rested and relaxed and refreshed, I realized I really enjoy writing. I really enjoy figuring out financial problems associated with financial independence and also the emotions and the lifestyle that go behind that. And so uh, I've turned into an author. I just keep writing. And if I'm not writing a, a blog post, I'm writing the next book or I'm writing some deathless prose on Facebook on a perpetual debate. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that. What books have you written and where can people find those? Uh, the book that is already out, the first book is The Military Guide to Financial Independence and Retirement. It was published in 2011. It's evergreen. It's going to be one of those books that's going to last for another 10 or 20 years without anything changing because it talks more about the lifestyle than it does about your paycheck. Uh, that's written for military families, uh, not just active duty and reserve or National Guard, but also veterans, anybody who's got any military experience. Uh, the secret in that book is that the math works the same for civilians as it does for military, but in the book, I explain all the military benefits that go with it. A couple of years ago, my daughter and I had an idea for another book, and we are now editing and will soon be publishing the book that talks about making that financial independence go to the next generation. So the title of the book is Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence. And it's a memoir. It talks about all the things we did with our daughter when she was growing up that instilled frugal habits in her and taught her how to manage money. Essentially, we started out letting her waste very frequent small sums of money. And through wasting that money, she learned how to become a better manager of it. And I'm talking about a young kid, not even in kindergarten yet. And as she grew older, she got better and better at managing her money and got more and more comfortable with it. And we kept raising their skills to the next level. Of course, today she's in her 20s. Uh, she and her spouse uh, started their family. In fact, their baby girl was born 10 days ago. So these guys have no sleep. It's a good thing they have their life mostly on autopilot. <laughs> and and they're well on their way to financial independence. The skills that they were raised with, the things we taught our daughter when she was growing up, that has gone to the next generation. So we've written the book. Uh, I'm actually the co-author. She's the lead author. And it's a story of one event. And we talk about what our parental brilliance was when we came up with this idea versus how she perceived it to be when she was you know, four years old or eight years old or 12 years old. And it just goes through that process of raising your kids and getting them ready to leave the nest and go out there in the big world. And yeah, so the idea is that parents will look at this and figure out other techniques they can use in their families. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. So what what have you done? What's maybe a few things that have stood out to you that you've tried to do to teach your daughter and, and to raise them so that they're aware of their finances and 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 being financially successful when they grow older? It, it starts when they are old enough to stop eating money. Uh, you just get them comfortable with playing with coins and, and bills and learning how to count, learning what a quarter is and what a dime is. And eventually you're going to start giving them a small allowance. And the whole idea is that they have enough money to do something and not enough money to do anything. And the whole idea is that they have to start making financial choices with small amounts of money. And one author that talks about your financial learning says that as a parent, you have to get in the mindset that your kids are going to take a $20 bill 
and are going to light it on fire like a 4th of July sparkler and run around the backyard waving it in the air until it's all gone. And they'll keep doing that. But hopefully they're doing it with dollar bills instead of $20 bills. The <laughs> whole point, the whole point is they're going to waste their money a lot during the first few years. And those lead to those teachable moments where you can say, well, how did you feel when you bought that toy and it didn't look like the advertising on TV? How did you feel when you ate those 10 cookies and you didn't have any money left over for something else? And how did you feel if you didn't save your money or would you like to try saving your money and earning some interest on it? All those techniques as you're growing up are things that you'll try at a younger age. The whole idea is that they make all their financial mistakes at home where it's relatively small penalty for failure instead of when they're in college or at their first job. And as they get older, the allowances not only get bigger, but you start stretching them out. What used to be a weekly allowance for a seven-year-old is now a monthly allowance for a 13-year-old, or maybe it's even a quarterly allowance for somebody who's 16 or 17 years old. The whole idea is to introduce the idea of budgeting. The other thing is you start giving them financial incentives. If they find a coupon for food that the family buys at the grocery store, then they get half the savings of that coupon. Uh, if they pack a home lunch for school instead of paying money for the school lunch, well, let them keep half the savings. If they bicycle to school instead of buying the bus ticket to get to school, let them have that money for their savings. They share in the profits whenever they do something that saves the family money. That, that turns out to let them be internally motivated. They want to earn money by finding all these deals out there instead of having to get being scolded by parents and getting all those lectures about how they have to save money because it doesn't grow on trees. You internally motivate them instead of forcing them to have to listen to the rules. Wow, that's a terrific answer. I'll I'll tell you another benefit of it is as they learn to manage large sums of money and they go out there to their first job, especially in the military, and they get offered a large bonus payment to stay at that job or to work harder or to stick around in the Navy for the next level of responsibility. If they've been financially responsible and they're comfortable managing their money, they can look at that bonus and understand why the employer is being so nice to you and put it in the context of whether they're enjoying their career. Is it challenging and fulfilling? Because if they're not doing it for love, then they probably shouldn't do it for the bonus money. Yeah. Makes them think about it different. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to skip a couple of these rapid fire questions that we normally ask, but I do want to hit on a few. Um, What's been the most expensive car you've ever purchased? We had a good conversation about that in our house, and the most expensive one we bought was a uh, a Toyota Prius. And uh, we bought it in 2008. It was already uh, two years old. It was a 2006 model. We spent we spent full retail, twenty one thousand five hundred dollars. But we drove that car literally into the ground. We got rid of it in early 2019. <laughs> so what was that thirteen years? Yeah, thirteen years. It, How it many finally miles? Had- uh, well, you don't drive a lot on the island, so it was 105,000 miles, but our daughter learned to drive that car, and uh, the car itself uh, finally had a, a repair that was one of those terrible repairs. It's a $150 yeah. circuit card with a $1,000 labor to get it out of the dashboard. Yeah. Okay, what uh, item or experiences are worth spending more money on to you? Our, our splurges are going to be first-class travel and slow travel for long periods of time, and then a smaller splurge is where I go out and buy used surfboards. Okay. What item is not worth the money? Well, that was that was difficult. Uh, we finally, after talking about it, decided that things that aren't worth the money are paying retail. And also uh, a theme now that our daughter's in her 20s has been fancy weddings. And fancy weddings are just not worth the expense to us to, to spend that amount of money on your wedding day under tremendous pressure at a time when you should be celebrating a relationship and being able to relax and have fun with friends. 
Mm. So a big fancy wedding, a five-figure sum uh, for spending that wedding, uh, that does not have any value to us. In fact, it has way too much pressure. Yeah. Uh, if you're comfortable sharing, what age were you when you became a millionaire? Oh, that one. Uh, 1997. Uh, at the time, we were uh, 36 and 37 years old. And I have to also disclose that in 1997, with the uh, Internet uh, era, uh, just about everybody reached a million dollars at at one point or another in 1997. <laughs> it didn't – maybe it didn't last very long, but you probably right. got there. Right. Have you ever used a financial advisor? No, never had a reason to. Uh, I had a bad experience with one at the very beginning of my career back in the early 80s, uh, you know, high-fee uh, fund. And I realized after we got married that we could figure that out on our own. Okay. How much do you spend a year, household spending? We spend roughly uh, $80,000 a year, and about 45 of that comes in as my pension. Maybe we'll have a little cash flow from the rental as well. And, of course, there's dividends from the uh, total stock market index fund. Uh, and some years are bigger than others. Uh, last year, we were in travel for four months out of the year, and our spending was a little over $100,000. But 80 is a good average number for 18 years. Okay. Uh, if you're comfortable sharing this range of household income through your working life. Oh, well, everybody jokes about those uh, smart, overpaid submarine officers. And, and maybe those things are actually true. But uh, <laughs> I didn't hit I didn't hit a six figure income until 2001, just before I retired. Everything was uh, down as low as thirty thousand dollars when I started and as high as uh, ninety thousand to one hundred thousand dollars the year before I retired. And that was 20 years. Is that right? 20 years of active duty. I retired in 2002. So that uh, $100,000 figure was 2001, hypothetically, at the peak of my military career. Okay. And then happiness or fulfillment, what does that mean? What's what's that for you? Having the time under my control. In other words, I'm not trading my life for money. Instead, I'm making the best use of my time. And it's not always apparent that I am making the best use of that time. But it's being able to pursue the things I want to pursue and have control over that time to pursue them. Just to wrap up here, you sent in some great words of advice for for somebody who's just kind of starting out, and I kind of want to I kind of want to read a couple of these and, and kind of get your elaboration on them. The first thing you said is that high savings rate overcomes a lot of mistakes. Number two, don't sacrifice for financial independence. Number three, learn how to change jobs and even careers. And and then number four was the 4% safe withdrawal rate is a tripwire for leaving full-time employment. I, I just kind of want to get in your head a little bit and, and elaborate yeah. on those, especially the one about don't sacrifice for, for financial independence. What what are you kind of saying there? What What's the message to get across to, to maybe somebody who's just starting out? Well, if you read Yahoo Finance or uh, CNBC or The Guardian, they're always the media is always popularizing the uh, frugal millionaires. You know, they're recycling their toilet paper, they're uh, dumpster diving for their food, uh, they're doing <laughs> extraordinary things with dental floss to get to financial independence. And it gives the average reader the impression that if you want to be financially independent, that you have to sacrifice your entire lifestyle for some incredible number of years before you reach financial independence. And then by then you're old, you might be financially independent, but you aren't young enough or don't have enough energy left to enjoy your life anymore. And of course that's not true. So I try to get people to understand that frugality is something that you do when it's challenging and fulfilling. If you're cutting out the waste in your life, if you're, doing your spending in the optimal things that are what you want to have for your lifestyle, then you're being frugal. You're putting your money where it means something to you and you're willing to work for it. 
And if you afford that and continue to spend frugally, then you feel you know challenged and fulfilled and you feel like you're winning. I tell my military readers that we all know where deprivation is because we've all been in the middle of a long deployment or the families aren't together or something bad is happening out there at the pointy end of the spear. And so we all know what deprivation feels like. And that makes it very clear to you as a military family where you've crossed that line from being frugal to being deprived. Now, now deprivation has its uses. It's a great way to meet a short-term goal, but it's unsustainable and it's extraordinarily painful. And that's where the sacrifices come in. So you dial it back until you're frugal, challenging, fulfilling, and you feel like you're winning. That's how you get to financial independence is by optimizing your spending on those goals and if your goal is to be financially independent, then you'll have the savings rate to support that. If your goal is to have a uh, affluent lifestyle filled with large homes and luxury automobiles, all you have to do is be willing to work long enough to pay the money for it. Totally. Was it hard when you kind of made that shift in, in mindset when you went from retirement to, to, like you said, flying first class and doing some of these things that, that maybe you wouldn't have done when you were on your way? Oh, oh, absolutely. And at first it had no value to us, but after a while we made the mindset shift where we realized that, for example, I'll, I'll use first class travel. You start out in Oahu and you fly on a red eye flight to the mainland and you left late at night, but it was a five hour flight and you got zero sleep. So now you're starting your morning in Los Angeles or San Francisco. You didn't get any sleep. You're already jet lagged. You were squeezed into a small seat, your knees are sore, and this is the way you're starting your vacation. The other side of that is you get credit card reward miles or you stock up frequent flyer miles. You do some kind of travel hacking. And when you do that, you upgrade to either business class or first class. So you just keep upgrading as much as you can so that you can get a life flat sleep. You can seat, you can get a little longer sleep. You can show up a little better shape than you would have been if you'd been stuck back there in economy. And saving money by flying in a cheap airline seat ends up costing you more in the long term because it takes you a day or two to recover from that. Whereas if you spend that money up front or travel hack your way to first class, then when you arrive at your destination, you're that much more rested and you're ready to enjoy your life more. I'll also add as an aside, if you're in a military, you can fly what's called space available on military cargo aircraft. And so if you have plenty of time as a retiree and you're not too particular about where you're going or when you get there, you might be able to fly as a passenger space available in a military cargo aircraft or a military passenger jet. And those are free. And so that's the ultimate travel hacking. Uh, when we go on long-term travel, we tend to do at least half our flights on military space A, sometimes all but one leg of the trip will be on military space A. And of course, that cuts a lot of travel expenses out, makes it easy to afford an occasional first class airline ticket on a commercial airline. Totally. Nor just to wrap up, what, what advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out, military or not, to get to where you're at today, living the dream in Hawaii? I, I say that it's simple. It's straightforward. It's boring. You just have to be patient and persistent. Uh, but the first thing you do is track your spending, however that works for you. And the second thing you do a couple of months later is you figure out from your spending records where the money's been going and start cutting out the waste. I can't tell you what you're going to find out that you wasted your money on. But when you look back over where you spent your money in the last couple of months, you're going to find a lot of places that did not bring the value to your life that you thought. And that's the stuff you cut out. As your savings rate rises, as you have more income left over at the end of the month, start putting that in your investments and just keep doing that. If you can 
get to a high savings rate, and by high savings rate, I mean, say, 40%. That's challenging. It might take you a few years once you start your career. It might take you a few years to get to that rate. If you can get to 40%, you'll be financially independent within 20 years. That's the way the math works with stock market returns and asset allocations and a high equity portfolio. If that's your goal, uh, then that's what you do. If you want to have a bigger lifestyle, then you either have to get a higher paying career or you have to figure out how to enjoy that bigger lifestyle with less money. And I know people on both ends of the bell curve, people that make an extraordinarily high amount of money and only save 10 or 20% of it. On the other end, I know people that make very little money comparatively. I mean, we're talking literally down in the forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year area and still manage to save 60%, 70% of their income at that relatively low salary. It's all about lifestyle and priorities. That's awesome. Once again, that's Nord's got a net worth over a million bucks, got 270% of his annual expenses. Thanks for coming to the show today. Thanks. I really appreciate you guys having this out. I uh, enjoy talking about this, and hopefully somebody will sit down and do the math and uh, get a hold of you or get a hold of me and start their own path to financial independence. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.